Welcome to the Redemption's Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. It's good to be here with you. I, I do a terrible job of remembering holiday weekends. We get a couple minutes before, I'm like, where's the family? And it's like, oh, it's World Day. Okay, cool. So uh, it's good to see you. I'm glad uh, for you who are here. I'm glad that you are joining with us. We are today embarking on a brand new series uh, entitled The Rebuild Over the Book of Nehemiah. I'm really excited about jumping into that. Uh, something I want to keep in front of you just uh, method-wise, we want to uh, have anyone who spends two to three years with us, you or, or someone else who comes and, and spends some time with us, we want over that two to three year period for that person to have been able to have received a full healthy diet of the entire Word of God. Uh, so because of that, we don't want to only just preach New Testament Gospels all the time. We love those, but that wouldn't be a super healthy diet for us. Uh, the hope is that we form knowledgeable uh, followers of Christ. And here's the really big thing that we really, really want. We want us to be able to see how the gospel weaves into the entire Bible, Old Testament and New. So we'll tackle New Testament gospels at times. We'll tackle letters. We'll ta- tackle Old Testament books. We'll tackle the Psalms, all in the hopes of being uh, built up and seeing the gospel in absolutely uh, all of it. So this book, uh, Nehemiah, is, is partly just about balancing out our diet. We've been in the New Testament for a while, and, and now it's time to, to see the gospel, the narrative of redemption, even in the Old Testament. Now, to set our eyes in, into where we're going specifically in this book, not only is this about balancing out our diet, this, this book or choosing this book is really intentional for us because uh, Nehemiah tells the story of the people of God in, in a time when they were a, a little bit in uh, ruins is the way to put it. Tragedy and difficulty had came their way, and what ended up happening is later that tragedy and difficulty is harnessed into a situation that created leaders and it created vision, and how God, through that kind of beautiful rebuild, did something where he created a healthy, holy, and strong biblical community. Uh, so that story is it's kind of extremely relevant to us right now. If we're, if we're kind of honest about the church in uh, the West, what we can see is the church in the West is in a little bit of a difficult spot, right? Not just us, but just the, the church in the West overall. And, and how they've gotten that kind of difficult spot is the church in the West has prioritized attenders over disciples for about 20 years. Uh, and then just prioritized relevance over obedience for that long as well. The really difficult one that we float into as well is, is the church has prioritized amenities over life-giving sacrifice. Uh, and here's a big one. We have prioritized human wisdom uh, over and above the leading of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and this has left the church feeling weak and uh, anemic, maybe asleep at the, the wheel and in a desperate moment where we need renewal uh, and revival from the Holy Spirit in a rebuild, hence the series, The Rebuild. Because of that, I don't think it's a stretch to kind of connect to this book in the hopes that God would start a holy rebuild in us and other churches in the West. So this series, the way it will line out to keep a, there's always a little bit more work to do in the first sermon. The the way this series of this book will line out is the first probably about six messages will focus on the heart of a leader. It'll glean from Nehemiah uh, what he does, his lessons, his faith, uh, the, the way he approaches things. Uh, so it'll focus on that leadership. And then the second half of the book will focus on the soul of a community, showing us maybe what a rebuilt community might look like and how they may function and operate. Uh, it bears worth saying, though this book is, is kind of filled with pragmatic lessons, we, we do want to be a little bit careful 
Because I don't want to walk away from this series 13 weeks from now and all of us glean like two to three things that we should try a whole lot harder to become in order to follow Jesus better. That's not really what we're looking for here. We don't want to find a logical list of attributes that we should forge out better on our own. Uh, we are hoping in this book to, to, through it, learn some things and let the Holy Spirit kind of stir us so we can have this Spirit-led, Christ-empowered, new crop of believers that lead up or that raise up as leaders, enjoy conviction and the power, and see something kind of beautiful happen. We don't just want a list. We want the Spirit to change us through some of the things that we see in Nehemiah and in the community there. So... That means we're, we're not pursuing rebuilding just so that our house looks more presentable. Does that make sense? Not so we can just kind of shore up our weaknesses and, and look better in, in Columbia. We're asking the Holy Spirit to rebuild us for the glory of God to come more in our city. In the words of last week, we're, we're asking God to rebuild us to see the kingdom of God come more fully. We need to keep kind of the grand picture in frame so that we can see the gospel. The act of rebuilding that we see in Nehemiah, that is a gospel work. It's a symbol of the gospel because the gospel is taking things that are, are, are broken or without hope or beaten down, and it gives them new life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So this Old Testament rebuild is a picture of how Jesus rebuilds us and, and how we're asking him to rebuild the church in the West, including us, bringing dead things back to life. So we want to see Jesus move uh, really through this in our church, in our city, in our people, in our missional communities, in our neighborhood. The, the cry is, Jesus, don't just save us as individuals more. It's redeem everything, King Jesus. Redeem it through us and other churches and other things around. Come and bring your reign more fully into Columbia through what us and other brothers and sisters are doing. As we approach this first section, the heart of, of the, the leader, here's my thing for you. I'm praying that God pulls leadership out of some of you that you had no idea was there. Or maybe pulls leadership out of you that you've kind of been ignoring for a little bit. And maybe God will show you that you've been created to, to lead and lead out in some beautiful ways that you didn't think possible. Maybe the, the next season may bring those out. When we talked about an amenity culture, my big hope, we even talked about it with some friends last night, is that God would birth burden and vision in all of our lives and we would no longer wait for other people to give us ministries, but we would start them. How are we going to plant churches? How are we going to affect our city? How are we going to see people saved? We're always waiting for the next person to invite us into their ministry. Some of you have your own ministries. And man, I'd love to see Jesus kind of build that up and stir you towards us. So don't be surprised if Jesus stretches you a little bit and calls you to things that, that maybe even throw you out of your comfort zone a little bit. That would be really good. So Nehemiah, we're, we're going to uh, read the first three verses and then talk a little bit, and then we'll go through uh, the rest of the section for today. We're going to cover through verse 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chisiv, there's a lot of interesting words, I think I said them right, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. 
right? Bad news. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, that's the first part. We can, again, have to do introductory work in order to make sense of Nehemiah. In order to understand the book of Nehemiah, we have to understand the context of the time then. God's people, uh, Israel, in the Old Testament, they have this cyclical track record of God. Like, it's like Groundhog Day in, in a bad version on repeat. God will give the people of God mercy. They will prosper. Then in their prosperity, they will get kind of lackadaisical. They will forget God, begin sinning, even worshiping other gods, ignoring the covenant between them and God. And because of that, God will send judgment upon them for their unfaithfulness. God's people end up in bondage after that until they repent and call out to God over and over and over, and then he saves them all over again, and then the cycle starts again, right? It's just this pattern. The book of Nehemiah takes place during one of these kind of cyclical patterns where Jerusalem, the epicenter of Israel, of God's people, kind of like their capital, uh, where it's where their temple was located, it's where they met with God, it's where they had a hall or a walls of defense, it's where they had homes, it's where their identity and all those things were, Jerusalem gets invaded by the Babylonians at that point, and they get overtaken. Most of their citizens actually get taken off as spoils of war into exiled countries after their uh, defeat. This happens, again, because of the judgment of God. They had ignored and sinned against God, so God does this in order to get them to turn back to him. He brought judgment upon them, and if you're thinking, man, that sounds unfair, he told them ahead of time. They, they, they completely knew this was going to happen. So imagine that scenario. You have a city uh, as your own, a massive temple. It's where you meet with God. God has prospered you. There's food on the table. There's water to drink. There's good drink to have. There's joy to be had. But then all of a sudden, your, your city gets absolutely invaded and sacked, and, and fire is all over it, and it's destroyed. Where there was once worship, imagine that now there's bloodstains and rubble. You've got to see that as if this place, that happened there. You can't come here and worship here anymore because there's nothing left but spilt blood on the ground. The walls of defense are in piles of rock. There's nothing left of the city. And you and all of your people, for the most part, have been taken off as spoils of war. This is what happened. Decimated. Over 50 years after that, a man named Nehemiah from Jerusalem was working as a cupbearer to the king. So he had been one who was exiled, taken off, found himself in a position under King Xerxes. And as he's doing uh, his job for King Xerxes, over 50 years later, he gets a, vid- a visit from either his actual brother or, or uh, a person who had survived the exile. And the text says when he gets this visit, remember he's in a foreign land, somebody comes and visits him, he asks about Jerusalem. Right? Jerusalem is always on his mind. It wasn't something that just kind of randomly came up in, in a talk. He inquired about it, like, how's Jerusalem? Has it been rebuilt? Is it any better than before? Have we, have we regained anything? Have we repented well? Has God let us be rebuilt? What, kind of what's happening there? And he gets the worst news absolutely possible. The, the person tells him Jerusalem is in distress. Uh, The term in the Old Testament uh, depicts serious danger. Any remnant left behind finds themselves in a condition that's detrimental to life. So some people, even though they were taken out in exile, they kind of trickled back trying to rebuild and start their life back up. They were in severe danger. And worse than just danger, they were in shame and reproach. Serious danger, defeated, nothing looked good. After all of those years, things were worse than they had ever been. This is the news, right? Now imagine Nehemiah, man, hopefully they're better. No, they're worse. 
This is the news he gets. Now, before we read the next part of the text to see how Nehemiah reacts to uh, this news, I want to ask you to kind of consider something for a moment now and even this week. It's a really good gift to be able to be emotionally aware and and aware of how you react. One of the things that we need to ask is, is how do we react in bad news? Right? This, he got the worst news possible. What do you do? What emotions normally surface? What actions surface? Do you lash out? Do, do you cry? Do you get into this weird spot? Do, do you get into kind of fix-it mode? Do you fill a cup with strong drink? Do you zone out so you cannot feel the weight of, of, of what you just heard? What is your core tendency when something breaks your heart or you get really rough news because that needs to be kind of prodded a little bit in order to understand what to do with bad news when you get it? Now, Nehemiah 1, 4 through 11, let, let's see how he reacts to the worst news he could have got at that point. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. There's confession and repentance there. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandment and do them, though your uh, outcasts are in the the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by the great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. We're going to look, not at the ins and outs of all his prayer. It's worth you looking at later. We bought these uh, little note Bibles for you guys in the hopes that that would be valuable to you. We even put a little schedule of our sermons so that you can read ahead because some of these sermons are going to be an entire chapter long and some of them even two chapters and we're not going to spend all the time reading through all that. So, so we want you to be able to see what's happening later this week. Maybe look at the prayer. He starts with the character of God instead of the ask. There's corporate confession, there's corporate repentance, and then the ask comes last. That, that's, that's really good to look into. We're going to look at more of the heart that he came into this issue, though. What we find is uh, this news about Jerusalem burdens Nehemiah greatly. It afflicts him. It's not a momentary thing. It's not a small deal to him. It breaks his heart that the people of God are in shambles. What we want to dive into is what does Nehemiah then do with that burden, though? Our world right now has, has countless burdens, things that fire them up, that sadden them, that, are, that, that mess with their heart, that, that hurt them. But our world also, including us, has a great problem with how they deal with their burdens. Generally, we see four ways that burdens are dealt with in our culture, through sympathy, through empathy, through compassion, 
or through indifference, which are reactions with different combinations of emotion and action. All of these are, are going to be different back and forth between those two things. And we want to try and break that down a little bit to kind of understand what our culture does and maybe what our tendency is that we're not realizing. So the, the first way to act in burden is through sympathy. Sympathy deals with a burden by feeling bad. So there is that, that first metrics there. There is emotion. But that emotion doesn't ever lead to, to action. It just kind of stops in the feelings. Like, oh, and, and, then, and it keeps moving on. A sympathizer will often uh, be apathetic to a bad situation thinking, hey, somebody should fix that. Somebody should do something about that. But I, I, I don't have time. I don't, that's not my calling. I'm not a leader. That's not my gifting. And they'll kind of move on. Sympathy brings emotion to the table, but literally no action at all. And then the next one, this is the one that our heart really needs to process, empathy. Our culture right now is a culture of untethered empathy that is pressed to the bounds, even the church. Our empathy is pressed into sinfulness very often, and I don't think we're realizing it. Empathy deals with a burden by feeling bad for a person or a group of people. So emotion is how they respond. Again, emotion is present, and then they act on that emotion by jumping in to feel the pain of the person burdened by being right beside them in the pain. They jump in, I'm going to feel it with you, I'm going to be there, I'm going to be in the muck and the mire, I'm going to feel this with you. Emotion is present, and then they think that them feeling it too is action. Now, let's try and kind of process this out. This is an uh, example I heard from a good friend of mine, so I'm just going to steal it. It was, it was helpful to me. Uh, imagine a person is drowning in quicksand and you walk by. The, the sympathetic reaction is you come by and you're like, oh, that, that's so sad and they're hurting and that's, oh my gosh, and you, your heart feels for them, but then you go to work. Now, somebody will fix that later, and you move on. The, the emotion is there, but nothing happens. Now, the, the empathetic person, what do they do? They walk up, they see the person drowning in quicksand, like, oh, my gosh, and they, they feel it, and they're sad, and they're hurting, and what do they do? They sprint towards them, jump into the quicksand, and hug them, and they feel the emotions with them. It's not just you. I'm going to die, too. We're both going to die. I'm feeling it with you. They, they jump in to feel the pain of the person in struggle. Ultimately, hear me, we have to understand our culture. Right now, empathy is viewed as a heroic trait. Who wins in our culture? The person that feels the hardest of the burdened person. Oh, look how much they're connecting to their pain. Right? This is viewed as like, oh, they're the best person in the world. But here's the problem with empathy alone. Here's what I want to see too. We don't want to just throw haymakers. Our calling is more than emotion. That's why I'm saying this. The problem with empathy alone is empathy fixes nothing. It does nothing. The empathetic person views their emotion as action. Oh, because I'm feeling it with them, I'm helping them. No, you're not. You're just feeling it with them. That person with empathy jumps in and feels, but doesn't help them out. Now, the culture of empathy that we have is extremely judgmental. Why? Because they view their emotion as action. Like, well, I'm doing my part. I'm feeling the feels with them, right? I, I, I'm, I'm helping. So what does is, what is the empathetic crowd do right now? They turn and they go, well, the government should fix that. 
The church should fix that. What's the church doing about that? What's the man doing? What's she doing? What's he doing? What are they doing? What they're really good at is going, well, I'm taking action because of my emotion, but what are you doing? And they kind of throw haymakers at everyone else. So they're really good at blaming. They're really good at outrage. They're really good at canceling, but they're not really good at helping. But they think they are. Then compassion. This is what we are called to. Compassion deals with burden by feeling the emotion for the situation and then matching the intensity of that emotion with action that can actually help. That is compassion. Right now, our culture is very confused where they think empathy is compassion and it's not. So action isn't just emotion, though. Action isn't just social media posts. A compassionate person responds uh, with the feels, but then seeks an action to bring about real change for the person who is hurting. So again, back to the example of the quicksand. The sympathetic person, oh, that's sad, walks on. The empathetic person, oh, that's sad, jumps in. Now they're both going to die. The compassionate person walks by, they feel bad for them, they hurt for them, but they grab a root on sturdy ground, a long limb, and they reach out and they try and help the person out. That, that's different. That's different. It's a match of emotion and action in a smart way. The compassionate person, because they're feeling and acting, they don't have time to blame everybody else. They spend their time feeling and acting, and this is what biblical leadership looks like. I am not emotionally shut off, and, and my actions aren't indifferent towards what you're going through. And then, of course, that brings us to indifference. That's the easy one. Indifferent people have no emotional response, and they take no action. They're too busy doing their own thing to help anybody out. Right? They see the person drowning in quicksand, and they just literally walk by. Nehemiah, when he feels burden for the people of Israel in Jerusalem, his immediate response is he wept and he mourned for days. There are times that we read texts in the Bible and we go through too fast to not understand. Can you imagine a point where you literally wept and mourned for days and days and days? This is what he did. I'm not asking you to go do this after church. I'm just saying he, a long time, this is his... This is emotion. He cared for what was happening. And he also prayed and fasted for days as well, so he took action. But we need to dig in deeper. Emotion and action that Nehemiah took in this text, uh, the emotion and action is persistent and consistent. It wasn't a flash in the pan. It wasn't a a single uh, action, and it wasn't a Hail Mary distracted prayer walking to your next thing that you're doing so you can say that you did something and then never touch back into it again. Nehemiah jumps into an ongoing prayer and an ongoing conversation with God about how he feels and what's happening, asking God to work. While still languishing over the, the brokenness and his emotions, he's also asking God to do something. And what we find in the, in the text, it's kind of hidden in the dates, is he actually does this for over four months. Four months he weeps and mourns and prays. And then if he feels like, man, I need to do something more, then he, then he fasts. And he prays and he fasts and he weeps again and he prays and he fasts. If you want to grab a hold of this, what we can see already is godly leaders respond to burden with persistent emotion and action. They aren't flippant. They aren't flighty. They don't get sucked into this week's 
cultural outrage movement. They feel and they act by going to God with their burden. This is how they respond. And and hear this. To go to God with your burden in prayer, what I hope we understand is an immensely powerful act to take. Prayer is powerful action. This is a great moment to seek clarity over how you're prone to respond. Are you prone to sympathy or empathy over compassion? Would you say, no, I'm not prone to any of that. I'm prone to indifference right now. What are you prone to? Are you prone to get kind of sucked up into the issues of our culture and then walk away fast? Because if you are, God may be calling you in his grace and kindness to a new path, one that is persistent like Christ was when he brought redemption to us. Did Christ just enter into his emotions and nothing else? No, he moved in with persistent emotion and prayer and action on our behalf. This is what Nehemiah did, and this may be what we are called to as well, a path that embodies persistent emotion and action. You ever notice in the Bible how things go in like 40-day cycles or year cycles, and then our mind kind of gives up on things in 24 hours? Persistent people. Pray consistently, feel consistently, and don't move on. We've covered that biblical burden isn't just emotion, it's also action. But the next question that we need to wrestle with is what kind of action, though? What does a godly man or woman do to act powerfully in the face of the burden that they are given? So often, uh, we move from emotion to action immediately in a situation. Right? This, this is one that, that I do. We can tend to analyze the situation, and then we make a plan of action in that situation. We jump into fix-it mode. We hit the feels, and then we jump in to make a plan, and we hammer out steps that we're going to take to fix it all. If we're honest, we carry out our plan, our way, on our own, and then what do we do? Then we pray when our plan fails. Prayer has often become a last resort. But look at Nehemiah. He runs to prayer as a first resort in burden. The beautiful kind of switch that that, that our minds need to understand here is Nehemiah runs to prayer and God doesn't run from that prayer. That's a powerful thing. This is godly leadership, a soul that prays first in its burdens. It prays first. It prays not because it's weak. It prays not because it it, it has nothing else that it can do. It prays because it is dependent on God and knows that God's power and God's plan are greater than its own. And it prays because it's humble, knowing God is greater than itself. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So in burden, when we run to God for his grace and his hand and his aid, it's knowing that he is bigger than us and humbly moving forward, asking for him to work, asking for his kingdom to come, his reign to come, his healing to come for the burden that we have on our minds. Because we know that it's only when God's reign comes over a situation it's only when Jesus, King Jesus rules over a difficulty. It's only when the, when the gospel moves in and takes root that any real lasting or meaningful resolution or relief can be found. So prayers are powerful ways to fight because they're asking kingdom of God, strong king, come. May your will be done. May your kingdom come. May your power come into this situation. What we need to stretch ourselves to remember once again or be revived for is that prayer is the most powerful thing that you can do. Should it be the only thing? No, but it is the most powerful thing. 
I think God wants to kind of turn that in us. Prayer is powerful. My heart has been grieved by this and has needed to repent many times. I've talked to the elders about it over this year, the desire to have the wisdom of God over what we are doing as a church and to ask him in prayer to help us. I've looked at many situations that I've immediately ran into the, the, the well of my own wisdom when I have a burden. Immediately, I make a plan. I use uh, my, my God-given intuition as kind of a, a way to bypass God, assuming that because he's my father that I will automatically make the right decision when hardship comes. I've wrongly at times assumed that my plan is the most powerful plan, but I never consulted God about the plan. And that's not leadership. And that's not how we're called to act in our burdens. In hardship, we're called to go to the Father, to share our emotions with him, and in that place, ask for his guidance, his vision, his wisdom. And here, ask for his powerful hand to act. God, come and change things. This is what Nehemiah did. He ran to the Father. The current flow of culture and thought is really challenging right now, though. How often have you heard it said, maybe said it yourself or just thought it inside, um, where you're frustrated by someone saying that they're praying? As if you feel like someone else praying is a cop-out. As, as if prayer is what weak and decisive people do because they don't actually want to do anything. You feel that? I have stories, even really, really recent ones, of professing believers getting really upset because another believer asked them if they could pray for them and if they have prayed in the face of the hard situation that they are in. Somehow the belief that prayer is not compassion has taken root and we need to purge that. As if people who pray are calloused and they don't care and they're not really in it and they don't really love. Hear me, prayer isn't what losers do, it's what warriors do in the kingdom of God. We've forgotten that at times. This thing that tells us, oh, it's just, like you just need to go do something. You need to not pray. It's the enemy setting us up. We need to ask our mighty Father, help us work here. Let us remember who you are. What if we begin to adopt a mantra of a prayer first mindset? Walk with me. Where before you share the gospel with a person that, that has been on your mind, you pray heavily. God, uh, man, you put them on my heart. Will you help me with even the words to say? Will you go ahead before our conversation? Will you soften their heart to this? Will you, will you help me, not, not to be prideful, not to sound judgmental, but would you help me to give me the words of spirit before I even go so that person can see that you're good? What would happen if we prayed heavily before? What if we prayed before we invited people to church? God, I've asked this person so many times and they're on my heart. Will, will you make this be the day where their heart is soft and they come in and worship and they see you, King Jesus? Would you please do that? Or before a hard conversation, if we prayed first, in the car or the day before, Holy Spirit, I am, I'm not looking forward to this. Will, will you help me? Will you help love be the tone here? Will you make judgment, not the tone? May this not feel like a fight or a war against that person. Would you give me the words to say, the compassion to, to, to say it well? Would you slow my heart down? Would you bring your loving redemption over this hard situation? What if we prayed that way before we had the conversation instead of after when it blew up? Before we confront each other's sin. You and I will sin. If we prayed, Father, will you help me? Their eyes are closed to you in this area. 
Would you help me love them more? Would you make me not blind to my own sin? May I show them your love and mercy and not my, hospi- or not my hostility or, or the sense of pride? Would you help uh, just weed out that bitterness or frustration in my heart towards them and pull them towards you, King? If we prayed before we tried to fix people's problems, what if we prayed before we took jobs, before we quit jobs, before we made five-year plans? What if we prayed before we did things that we say that we are, we are passionate about? What would happen if we were a people who bathed all things in prayer? Would we not feel more known by God because we had had this back and forth we've continued to share with them what's on our heart? Would we not feel more equipped because we've known that we have asked our mighty Father for help? Would we not feel less anxious because we know that God has heard us? Would we not feel stronger because we know that the Holy Spirit is with us? Would we not feel more bold because we know that our Father's already walked ahead of us into the issue and that Christ has done everything needed? This is what prayer does. And then check this side. that If we were a prayer first people, what else would it do? Maybe we would have to apologize less for being dumb. Maybe it would slow us where we don't come in hot to situations. Maybe we would move in love and peace instead of war and anger. Not only would it be more powerful, maybe we would be more palatable. If we prayed first, asked for the heart of the Father before we moved into our area of burden rather than just coming in like a wrecking ball with our plans. See, prayer is the most powerful and wise thing that we can do. If your heart is pushing back going, okay, yeah, yeah, I get that we should pray, but what about the action? Right, type A's. What about personally getting into the fight? What about really, really actually investing? This is at my heart as much as it is yours. If prayer doesn't feel enough, then add what Nehemiah did. Then start fasting. If you want to fight and feel like you're doing something, pray and then add fast. You'll feel like you're doing something. Fasting is a way of supercharging your prayers and your spiritual health. Fasting is a profound and weighty action that does something in the spiritual realm. Because it says, I care more about this King Jesus than I care about my desires, my hunger, my body, the things that I'm doing. I desire you and your work and your way and your kingdom over all other things, and I'll prove it by battling my flesh. Fasting is bringing out the big guns in the spiritual realm of prayer. That thing that goes, oh, what are you really going to do? Add fasting. You'll feel it. I promise. So let's step back. In the face of burden, Nehemiah wept and he mourned. And Nehemiah, when things got the worst, carved out time to pray and fast. Our hearts need to see, like we always need to be looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. This is exactly what Jesus did. How did Jesus handle things? When he approached Jerusalem years and years and years later, he wept for the broken people. Seeing that they were in a bad spot, that they were injured, that they were tore down, that spiritually they were not thriving. He hurt deeply for them. So don't ever think that things didn't weigh on Jesus and he didn't feel or have emotion. He wept over them. And yet when things got the hardest, what else did he do? He retreated to pray. The confounding thing. Man, I dropped the ball on it so much. When I get busy, I pray less. When Jesus got busy, he prayed more. 
Where's Jesus? He's off praying. Where's Jesus? He's off praying. As things got more intense, he retreated to do battle by praying more and more, not because he was weak, not because he was indecisive, not because he wanted a day off, but because he was dependent on God. He wanted to share his burden with his father. He wanted the wisdom of the father. He wanted to ask God to work on his behalf. This is what Jesus himself did, and we right now might need to have fresh eyes to see this is what we are called into. Again, the hope for this, I want to slow down so many times. This is not pragmatics of do better at this, stop stinking at this. This is Holy Spirit, churn this and teach us to be that. What if we caught a vision for 2021 where we did that? Blend emotion and action through weeping, mourning, prayer, and fasting and saw the king work. As we begin kind of walking down this road, the road of the rebuild, the very first thing that we need to do and what I want you to, to begin to do is begin to be aware and ask what burden has God given you? What burden? What are you passionate about? What does your mind navigate to a lot? What do you feel drawn towards? What do you feel drawn to act in? Or, or, or maybe, maybe you've turned empathetic and don't know it. What do you think other people should be doing all the time? What do you hurt for? What, what screams this needs fixing? What brings tears to your eyes? What stirs you inside? Because that is your burden. And maybe we, we do this. We understand that your burden is actually maybe your calling right now. God uses that powerfully. I believe that some of you know that there's a burden that God has given you. And I want you to consider that now may be the time to walk healthily in compassion towards that burden, to, to own it, to begin moving in compassion towards that thing in emotion and action, but bathed in prayer as your first action. This could be a season where God radically changes things. The ask over and over and over again, please stop waiting for others to do something and know that maybe God has chosen you. Maybe God has gifted you. Maybe God has wired you. Maybe the Holy Spirit is ready to walk with you, to lead you into, to begin moving and praying over an issue, and then you lead us into your burden. I've been blown away by the stories by many of you right now who are clearly burdened for mission and evangelism. It's a story on repeat who desperately want to share Jesus. And I want you to consider whether this is your calling right now to begin to start praying about that. That is your burden. Maybe now is the time to begin praying and fasting over that, to pray boldly, God, would you give me a plan? Would you give me action? Would you give me your power? Would you step into that? And maybe be amazed as God leads you to lead your brothers and sisters into mission in a new way. So many of you have evangelism on the heart. Pray and go. Pray for the strength of God and move. Do you understand God has given you that burden for a reason? And if he's given you that burden, he's also equipped you to walk into that burden. What if we saw that? It's time to step into our calling. Church, what if several of us did that? Some of, several of us prayed persistently over evangelism and several of us over ministering to certain groups of people. Uh, I know many here have, have had refugees on the heart for a while who keep praying for, what, what, what is Redemption's Hill in my life ministering to, to refugees look like? What if there were several of these issues that we just began to persistently pray as action towards? Could God not start brand new avenues of ministry all over for us to walk in? I hope that we would catch a vision for that this year. God empowering his people 
Again, the amenity culture has done something weird to us. We feel our burden and then we get mad. Together, let's feel our burden and then pray and then have God unleash us. To see his kingdom come. To see his glory come. To see lives change. To see them follow Jesus more and more. I'll remind us, being those who move in healthy ways towards our burden, again, that's an outworking of the gospel. The same way Jesus had compassion on us when we were lost in our sin and without hope, the same way that Jesus wasn't just emotional towards our plight, the same way that he blended emotion with action through prayer and then stepping down into our, our situation and living and dying and resurrecting for us, the same way that he matched those things, this is what we are called to ourselves, not to be the world's savior, but to follow our savior into burden with emotion and action. To see things redeemed. To see beautiful change come about. There's something in you that's just going, that's just not possible. Can we pray through that? See, our, king, our Savior came down from glory, and he stepped into brokenness to save us. And through his life, death, and resurrection, we have been made brand new. We don't have to earn it. right? We don't have to buy it. We don't have to fix ourselves. Jesus has come in compassion, done the work, brought us into redemption. Our work is to believe in him, and then we follow him. Part of this following him is then becoming his hands and his feet, the light of the world. We are redeemed to redeem. We are saved to see others come into the saving hands of God. This is the beautiful calling that we have. In order to walk in that, we'll have to understand maybe in just a newer, healthier way, what do we do with our burdens in order to walk towards that? Burdens point towards your calling. It's time for us to get better at dealing with our burdens. Let us feel the weight, go to the Father, ask for his wisdom, ask for his plan, plan, and then boldly ask him to do huge things that are beyond what you could imagine. I'm excited to see what he does through this. Consider that he may be calling you into something that may scare you. That's okay. Because in renewal, he often calls us into situations that are bigger than we could ever imagine, but then he equips us and the Holy Spirit is with us as he sends us out. Compassionate people soak their burden in prayer, move out in the Spirit, and see God do beautiful things. This is what I pray for us. Man, you guys can come back up. Next week we'll look at what Nehemiah's prayer led to, because make no mistake, we want to become prayer first people, but it doesn't end at prayer. Prayer is how we plan. It's how we get power from God. It's how we connect to the Father and ask him to work. But Nehemiah then moved out in action. We'll see that next week and then begin to kind of maybe build a little bit. What do we do, we do with burdens uh, after we started praying? We don't want to say after we finish praying because that will be continual. We will today, um, in closing, be able to take communion. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, or as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
today as we begin to hear about a rebuild, as we begin to talk about burden, as we begin to talk about the emotional, uh, the emotional way we move towards things and the action way that we move towards things outside of all of that or maybe before all of that is redemption. Christ has come. Christ has, has lived a life that we couldn't. He has given his life for us. And as we take, we remember his body and his blood was shed. I pray no matter how you have dealt with compassion or sympathy or empathy or what's happened for you over the last little bit that you would take and that you would be encouraged that my Savior has still died for me. He has covered all of my sins and, and maybe he's calling me as well. All are welcome to take. We have the cups in the, the entryway, but I pray that you would be built up in that. And this week that you begin to kind of process maybe what God's put on your heart for a reason and maybe it's a bigger reason than you've ever thought. Would you stand and pray with me?